0: that better? There we go. How's everybody? Good. Hope y'all got a good nap today, good, uh, watch some good football or whatever you like to do on your Sunday afternoons. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you would. We're going to look at Several verses tonight um, we are starting a new series tonight as as Josh said and is it up there it wasn't up there but it was earlier uh, the the kind of the theme of the series is the is the idea of a mystery okay and so uh, you know in in life there are all these words that we use in a general way um, but then they also have a Technical definition. If you're using them in a in a technical way, right? Like we know people that we might ask them, "How are you doing?" and they might say, "Well, I'm just kind of kind of down, a little bit depressed lately," and and we know what that means, right? But then there's another technical way that the word depressed is used, uh, like someone who has diagnosed with clinical depression, right? And so depression is used one way in just kind of normal life, uh, but then it has a technical meaning over here in another in another setting, right? Um, we might use the word surfing that way. Surfing, you know, if, if, I, if I said surfing, probably what comes to mind is is the beach, is waves, is the surfboard. But if we talk about surfing in the context of computers or the internet, it has kind of a technical meaning of, of what it means in that context, right? Um, and, and, and there's lots of other words like this. Plead is like this. We know what pleading means to beg someone, uh, but within the within the setting of a court system, pleading takes on a technical definition, a technical meaning. And so words... Mean different things depending on the setting that they're used in. and sometimes they take on these these technical meanings. and And we have these kind of words in in the Bible or in church life also. The word baptism, for instance, um, just means to to submerse, right? to submerse something um, in in water or in something else. But within the church, when we talk about baptism, it takes on a a technical meaning, a technical definition. It's the way that we show the world that we are believing in Jesus, and it involves being, being dunked in water, being immersed in water, but it's a way that we uh, tell the world and, and make public our profession of faith in, in Jesus. Um, there's another word we use in church sometimes. We use the word rapture, right? Um, and, and we talk about rapture. The word rapture just means to be kind of overtaken in, in a uh, kind of an emotional way, to be, sometimes you might hear the phrase t- that someone was enraptured, means they're kind of over, overcome with, with, with happiness or with joy or with excitement in an, emotional, in an emotional kind of way. But within the church setting, certain people use the word rapture in a technical sense to, to talk about what's going to happen in, in the end times, right? And whether we think that's uh, an accurate representation of what's going to happen in, in the end times or whether we don't think that's an accurate rep- representation of what's going to happen in, in the last days, that's, that's a technical definition that's used within, within churches sometimes. Um, Paul uses words this way in, in his letters in the New Testament, right? Paul uses the word flesh. Well, what does flesh mean? Flesh just means meat, right? Flesh and bones, what we're made out of, our, our bodies. And yet often when Paul uses the word flesh in the Bible in the New Testament, he uses it in a technical sense to talk about the, the sinful nature that we have right and so you get some authors in the bible like john who talk about the flesh and they say uh, they can say that jesus came in the flesh right jesus took on flesh and became became one with us and john john chapter 1 verse 14 talks about that the word became flesh right paul on the other hand believes that jesus became a person became a human like us but Paul wouldn't say that Jesus became flesh because that's not the way Paul uses the word flesh, right? Paul has kind of a technical way that he uses the word flesh. He talks about, he says to walk by the spirit, not by the flesh. And so he kind of, he uses this, the, the flesh word in, in this way to, um, to refer to kind of to the sinful nature, the fallen nature um, that, that we all have. And there's another word in, in Paul's writings that he uses this way, and it's, and it's the word mystery. We all know what a mystery is. We like reading uh, mystery novels, maybe we uh, we like watching mysteries on TV, maybe, Um, and we know what a mystery is. And and yet, when Paul uses the word mystery in the New Testament, he uses it in a little bit of a of of a technical sense, a little bit of a different way. And so, I want to look at this passage in in First Corinthians chapter two, and and we're going we're going to talk about this for a minute. My my task tonight is for us to to kind of define the way that Paul uses this word mystery, okay? And then the rest of the sermon series between now and uh, and whenever it ends, I think the, the beginning of December, yeah, between now and the d- uh, beginning of December, where different preachers are gonna come up on Sunday nights and different, uh, they're gonna look at different passages in Paul's letters where he uses uh, this word mystery, okay? And look at some of the different mysteries that Paul talks about. But if you have your Bibles there, look at 1 Corinthians chapter two. I'm gonna start reading in verse one and read through Verse 13. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, and when I, I'm sorry, let me start that over. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. But in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? Father God, we thank you for your word tonight. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here among us, that you would send him as your word has promised that you will. And Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word, help us to see the meaning of your word, but also, Father, help us to see the significance of your word. And I pray that you'd help us to apply your word to our lives, that we might be better followers of you, more faithful believers in Jesus. God, we thank you for him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the first things you might have noticed as I read through that passage was uh, I told you this was going to be a series on how the way that Paul uses the word mystery, uh, and you may have noticed that I didn't say the word mystery. The word mystery didn't come up in this passage. If you're using a different translation, I was just looking this up in the Holman Christian uh, or the Christian Standard Bible that's in the, in the pew there in front of you, and, and in that translation, it does say the word mystery a couple of times. Um, in the English Standard Version, it doesn't. It uses some different words, but we'll get to that when we when we come to it. But I want to look at a couple things and then give some examples. So first of all, let's look at, look at verses one through five. Paul says that when he came to the Corinthians, when he came to the church in Corinth, he says that he did not come in wisdom, but he came in power. He says, I did not come in wisdom, but in power. He says, when I came to you brothers, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so when Paul came to the church in Corinth, he's not trying to impress them. He's not using these big fancy words. He's not using... Uh, wisdom. He's not using philosophy and, and those kind of things. There are other, are other times in Paul's life where he does use, use philosophy. Right? Think about in in Acts. Um, is it chapter nineteen, I believe, where where Paul's there um, at the Areopagus at Mars Hill, and the philosophers are gathered, and he goes up and begins to talk to them and and and, uh, and reason with them, and shows them the truthfulness of. Of Christianity and the and the bankruptcy of what they were believing and the philosophies that, that they that they trusted in. So Paul's not absolutely against philosophy necessarily. He's not absolutely against um, using uh, the world's wisdom as an entry point to to get to people with the gospel. And yet he said here in when he was speaking with the Corinthians when he came to Corinth to their church, that's not the method he used because he didn't want their um, he didn't want their belief to be founded on on his words of wisdom, he wanted it to be founded on the Holy Spirit's power. He's not trying to convince them of the truth of the gospel with with a logical argument. Right, he said, I'm not trying to impress you. I'm not trying to, com- to to convince you with this with this logical argument, with the way that I'm that I'm thinking. In fact, if you turn in my Bible, it's actually the same page, the facing page on the other side of my Bible. Um, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter four, Paul says that when he came, he came. Not only did he not come in wisdom, he says he did come in foolishness, the foolishness of of the gospel. At least it's foolish as the world reckons it. He, he doesn't come to impress. He doesn't come in wisdom. He comes in in the foolishness of of the gospel. And the reason he does that is because he's trying to um, he's he's trying to preach the word so that unbelievers believe. He's trying to preach the word to these people in Corinth so that those who don't believe in Jesus begin to believe in Jesus. Right. And the, and, and the problem is not a problem of the mind. It's not a problem of the head. He doesn't come trying to impress them and trying to use these, these uh, wisdom expressions and these logical arguments because the problem is not a head problem. The problem is a, is a heart problem. People don't worship God not because they don't know to, but because they don't want to, right? You find people who don't worship God. It's not because they don't know that they're supposed to worship God, it's because they don't want to worship God. It's not a it's not an intellectual problem. It's not a it's not a, a mental problem. It's a moral problem, right? Paul makes this this point in Romans when he talks about how everybody worships something. He talks about how even uh, even people that build idols. It's because they know that there is a God and they're trying to find a way to worship that God. They're trying to make uh, an idol that represents that God. And and so people know that there is a God. People know that that we should worship God. The problem is not a knowledge problem, Paul says. The problem is a, is a moral problem, a heart problem. And so when Paul came to the church in Corinth, when he, there, when he came to the people of Corinth who were not believers yet to, to, to set up the church, to establish the church, he didn't come with using words of wisdom. He didn't come trying to impress them. He didn't come trying to build this logical step-by-step-by-step argument to reach their intellect, their mind. He came preaching the gospel with the Holy Spirit's power because he wanted to reach their conscience. He wanted to reach their hearts. It wasn't an intellectual problem, it was a moral problem. So the solution is the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart, not a work of the preacher on the, on the head, right? The Holy Spirit uses the preacher, but the, the, the result is, or the solution is, the Holy Spirit has to transform someone's heart, not that the preacher has to uh, convince someone's, someone's head. So when Paul first came to Corinth, where there were not believers, or at least were not very many believers, and the church was not established, and there weren't um, definitely weren't mature believers that had grown up in the Lord, he came preaching the foolishness of, of the gospel according to the wisdom of this world. But look at verse 6. He moves on. He says he didn't come proclaiming wisdom, he didn't come uh, with losty, lofty speech, Verse 6 says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Okay, So for those who are immature, those who are not yet believers, he, he doesn't come to them with wisdom. He comes to them with the foolishness of the gospel, that, that their consciences might be converted, that the Holy Spirit might change their heart. And yet he says there, there is a wisdom for those who are mature in Christ. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So there is a wisdom that Paul wants to wants to uh wants to pass on to those who are mature in Christ but it's not the type of wisdom that we might consider wisdom in this world right if he had come with preaching this type of wisdom to the unbelievers they wouldn't have recognized it as wisdom because it's it's contrary to what the world says it's not a wisdom according to the world look what he says in verse 7 he says, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So there's this secret wisdom, this hidden wisdom of God that Paul is wanting to impart to mature believers, okay? And if you look at that word secret, that word is mystery, okay? Okay? And so the word mystery does appear in this passage. If you look at the, at the Greek words that are behind that, you know, there's, there's multiple different, different ways that you can translate one word in, into English. But this is the Greek word. The, the word is mysterion, which sounds like mystery in English, but it's the Greek word mysterion. And, and that's the word here that these translators have translated secret. In other, other translations, the Christian standard that I mentioned translates it as mystery. So if you read that passage, it says this hidden mystery of God. So here it is. So for unbelievers, Paul comes preaching the gospel, get you converted, let's, let, let's believe in Jesus, let's speak to the conscience. To those who are mature in Christ, now let's learn the, the depths of the mysteries of God. So what is a mystery of God? The way that Paul uses it, right? We said that, I said before, there's these technical definitions. We know what a mystery is. We think of a mystery like in a novel or in a TV show or something like that, something where someone's trying to figure out what's going on. Think of like the Scooby-Doo cartoons. If you, uh, if you like those kind of mysteries, think it's like the Hardy Boy books. I read those growing up, and they were always trying to solve a mystery. Here just recently I've been reading um, some Mark Twain books. I've been reading Tom Sauger. I'd never read those books before, and so I read, I read Tom Sauger, and then I finished that one. It wasn't it very long. And so then there was the next one in the, in the collective works that I had was Tom Sauger um, Abroad, and I finished that one, and then now I'm reading Tom Sauger Detective. And he's trying to solve this mystery about these two diamonds that were in this guy's heel of his boot. They had a secret plate screwed on there and they hid the diamonds inside of it, which I don't care about that, but that was the mystery that he discovered, right? He's a detective. He's, he discovered that mystery. But that's not how Paul uses the word mystery. When Paul uses the word mystery in this, in this technical sense, here's what it means. It's an eternal plan of God that has now been revealed in Christ. It's an eternal plan of God that now has been revealed in Christ. So a mystery for Paul is something that God had planned all along, but it's just now been revealed in Christ, or through Christ, or, or because of Christ. Okay? So think about like a um, think about like a secret code and like a secret decoder ring. Right? The message was there the whole time. You just couldn't see it until you had the had the ring to decode it. Right? Think about like something that's written in um, in some kind of ink that you can only see under a black light right the, the message was there the whole time. you just couldn't see it until you looked at it through the uh, through the black light. And that, that's what a mystery is for Paul. That's the way that Paul uses this word in this technical sense. A mystery is a is a plan that God has had all along, but it's now been revealed in Christ, meaning it's a mystery that God planned. It's part of his eternal plan, but we only can now see, uh, see, what it, uh, see it and understand it and, and, and come to realize it if we look at it through Jesus, if we look at it through the gospel, okay? And we'll, we'll talk about some examples of this in, in a few minutes, but I want to point out a couple of things before we do about, about what these mysteries are. In, in verse 7 he says, we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God which he decreed before the ages of our, for our glory." So these these mysteries that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, are, are, these are things that God has decreed from um, from before the ages for our glory. These are not things that God has decided to kind of react to in time. These are things that God planned way, way back at the beginning of creation, even before the beginning of creation. He had these, th- these plans in mind, and he put these plans into effect, but they didn't come around, and, and we weren't able to realize them and understand them and see them until until the gospel, until Jesus comes. And now we look at them through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of the gospel. I don't know if you've ever seen those people that do those, uh, do those neat like chalk paintings. You ever seen those people? And sometimes they'll be preaching or, or, or teaching and they'll be doing the painting at the, the same time behind them, you know what I'm saying? Um, we've had some people come in here and do that uh, here before for some women's events and things like that, I, I remember. But there's some people who do those but they do them upside down. Right? I don't know if you've seen those. They do them upside down. They draw the picture and talk all, all that kind of stuff, the pastels, all that stuff. But they and they do it on like the black felt, everything the same way. But they do them upside down. And so you're watching them and you're trying to figure out what's going on and you can't see you can't see what it is until the very last second when they flip it up and it's like, Oh, that's what it was the whole time, right? Or there are other people who are, are are even craftier at that kind of stuff, and it's not that they do it upside down, but they do it they do it right side up, but they don't do it in a logical way, right? Like if we're going to draw somebody's face, we're going to draw the circle first, and then the eyes and the mouth, right? But they do it in such a way to where they're not they're not doing it in that kind of logical order. They're 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 drawing the little details here and there and putting them all together, and you don't. But but the image doesn't come across until they get the very last part on there. You understand what I'm saying? That's kind of how, how a mystery for Paul works in this technical sense. It's there the whole time. It's working the whole time. God's got it in, in, in plan the whole time. The whole plan's coming together, but you don't see it until, the, until kind of the, the final moment whenever Jesus comes on the scene, when the gospel happens, when Jesus dies and is, and is resurrected even. He says it was decreed before the ages. In verse 8, he says it's not understood by the world. He said none of the w- rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. None of the rulers of this age understood the the plan of the gospel. They didn't understand the the mystery of of God that he put into effect with with Jesus as kind of the the linchpin that, that makes it all happen. If they had understood it, if they had known what was going on, if they had understood the plan of God, they wouldn't have crucified Jesus to begin with. So it's something he's decreed from, from long ago, from before the ages. It's not understood by the world. And then look at verse nine. Verse nine says, uh, but, but as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear, uh, I'm sorry, not, not, not verse seven. Look at verse, uh, yeah, the, the end of verse seven. The end of verse seven says he did it before the ages and he did it for our glory. I said verse nine, but I meant verse, verse seven, for our glory, Okay. And then we do see this also, at, we do see it at the end of verse 9 as well. He says, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart a man imagined. And it says what God has prepared for those who love him. He's done it for our glory, and he's done it for those who love him. He's prepared it for those who love him. So the, so the mystery of God that, that Paul's talking about in this, in this technical sense, or the mysteries of God that Paul's talked about in these technical senses, is something that's decreed from before the ages. It's a plan that God put into a a place where God planned for it to happen before the ages began. It's something the world didn't understand. It's something that has been done for those who love him, for the benefit of those who love him, for our glory even. And it's something that we don't see if we're not looking with spiritual eyes, if we're not looking through the lens of Jesus. We're not looking through the lens of the gospel. So turn, turn with me just for a second to Luke chapter 24. And I want to show you an exa- uh, kind of a, another way of looking at this, or I want to show you this in action. And then I want to give you just a couple examples before we're finished tonight. Look at Luke chapter 24. If you start in verse 13 and read all the way down, um, you get the context of this passage. This is after Jesus has, has been crucified. It's after Jesus had been resurrected. He's come back to life. He's appeared to, uh, actually he hasn't appeared to the disciples yet. He's, he's just come back to life. And there's these two guys that are walking to this town called Emmaus. And they're walking on the road to Emmaus. You may be fam- familiar with this story. They're walking on the road to Emmaus and, and Jesus appears there with them. And that apparently doesn't surprise them. Maybe he snuck up from behind or they thought he was behind him and just kind of gained ground on him or whatever. But he's, he's there with them and they begin talking. He's listening to what they're saying and they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about their crucifixion. And Jesus says, what are you talking about? What's this news that, that you have? And they say, are you the only person in this whole region who hasn't heard what's happened? And Jesus says, what happened? And they tell him about the crucifixion of Jesus, right? We'll look down to verse... Um, Verse 25. They've been saying all that. They've been having this whole conversation. And here in verse 25, now Jesus is going to respond to them. Verse 25, and Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then skip down to verse 44. In verse 44, he's talking here to the disciples. After he had that conversation with the the people on the road to Emmaus, now he's he's appearing to the disciples, talking to them, and look at verse 44. And then he said to the disciples, Jesus said to the disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. And then, verse forty-five. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem." So, what does Paul? What, is, uh, what does Jesus do in those two situations with the with the men going to Emmaus, and then with the disciples? that he's talking to there later. In both those situations what Jesus does is he opens their eyes to begin to understand the Old Testament with with fresh eyes, with new eyes from a new perspective through the lens of the gospel, right? I'm wearing glasses. If I take my glasses off, I can't see all that well, right? Some of y'all look a little better, maybe some of y'all don't look so good, maybe, right? But if I put the glasses on, now I can see you the way that you're meant to be seen. Well, the same way if we're if we're reading the Old Testament we can we can make some sense of those stories. those things mean some things. We can even discover what they mean, right? But we don't always understand the significance of those stories or those truths until we see it through the lens of the gospel. The lens of the gospel, the lens of Jesus, corrects the way that we misinterpret, misunderstand uh, the the whole Bible. He said he started with Moses and with the prophets and with the psalm with the with the uh, writings and 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 those are. Uh, those are the three divisions of the Old Testament. You had the 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 law of Moses. You had the prophets uh, that included all the historical books. And uh, according to the to the Hebrew way of dividing up the, the Old Testament, you had the the law of Moses, the historical books, and then you had the the Psalms of the writings, the poetry books. Those are the three sections of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it says that Jesus began to open their eyes so that they saw all the things in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms, how they all referred to Him, how Jesus is the hinge that all of that turns on. So so here are some examples. Think about a few of these things. Think about the story of the Passover, right? We know the story of Passover. The the Israelites are in Egypt. They're they're enslaved in Egypt. They're having to make the bricks. It's hard, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Moses kills the Egyptian. Remember that whole story? And then God tells Moses he's going to lead them out of Egypt. And he comes with the 10 plagues, and he goes through all, those, all the different plagues. And he gets to the 10th plague, and he says, he says, uh, you know, you're supposed to have this feast and kill this lamb and eat it in a certain way or cook it in a certain way and eat it in a certain way, have your belt on and your robe on and your staff with you, and you're ready to go. And he says, that night, you take the blood and put it on the doorpost of your house, on the two doorposts and on the lintel on top. And he said, that night, the angel of the Lord is coming, and he's going to kill the firstborn of all those households. But when he sees the blood of the lamb, he'll pass over your house. That's why it's called Passover. He'll pass over your house and go to the next house, right? Well, we know what that means. That means that God is saving his people, Israel. God's providing a way for their salvation, providing a way for them to get out of Egypt. But we don't understand the significance of it until we see it through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of Jesus. That yes, the Passover is God. Uh, getting his people, his his Israelite people, his Jewish people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. But that's a picture of what he's going to do in the gospel of Jesus. That if those houses are covered by the blood of the Lamb, then they'll be safe from the angel of the Lord, the wrath of the Lord, right? If we're covered by the blood of the Lamb Jesus, we're saved from the wrath of the Lord. And we don't we don't see that significance until we look at it through the lens of, of the gospel. He's preparing his people to understand Jesus when he, when he comes. Think about the story of Abraham, and God tells Abraham to, to sacrifice his son Isaac. Y'all know that story? They're walking up the mountain, then and, and Isaac turns down and says, What's going on, Dad? We got the we got the wood and we got the fire, but I don't see a sacrifice anywhere. What, what are we doing? And Abraham says, The Lord will provide, right? And they get to the top of the mountain and they build the altar, and he puts the wood on top, and he puts Isaac on top, and he, and he ties him down and gets him prepared, and he has his knife up, and he's about to kill Isaac. And God says, no, don't do it. Don't kill your son. Look over in the, in the weeds. There's a, there's a ram that's caught by his horns. Get him and put him on the altar instead. So we understand that story from the Old Testament. We, we read it. We understand that, that that that's a test that God has given to Abraham. We understand that Abraham is, is faithful and, and trusting in God. If we go to, to the book of Hebrews, it even tells us that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he killed him. And, and so Abraham's trusting that God is going to f- keep the promise he made, that he was going to have a great nation through Isaac. But if we read it through the gospel, once we get to the New Testament, we see that that's a picture, again, of us... Owing our lives for our sins and God providing the ram to take our place. Substitutionary atonement, right? That's what we call it, that, that God took our sins and substituted a, a ram or a lamb for us. We see this throughout, throughout the Old Testament in the, in the, in the priestly system. Right? The priests that served God in the temple and had to make, make sacrifices every day and, and, uh, and every year they had to make the sacrifice of atonement and they took the one lamb, uh, the goat, and they sent him off, the scapegoat they called it, and they took the other one and they transferred the, put the hand on the head and transferred the sins onto the lamb and they killed that lamb as, as, a, as a sacrifice for sins. And then we get to the New Testament and we see that Jesus is our sacrifice. Right? And so there, there, there are things like this that God has put in place Throughout history, Look, think about the, even the the kings of Israel, right? God knew way back in in Deuteronomy. God says you're going to ask for kings here one of these days, and when you do, here's the kind of king I don't. Here's the kind of king that, that you're to put in place, right? Make sure he's one of your brothers, and it goes through the whole list in Deuteronomy 18 or Deuteronomy 17. And it, and it goes through there, and and so they do. But what is the purpose of having a king? Well, in the New Testament, we, we realize that David is a precursor to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we see what Jesus' role is um, ruling over his kingdom as we see the good kings of, of Israel. Right. So we have have all these things that, that happen throughout the Bible, and, and Paul references some of these and calls them mysteries, something that God put in place from long ago, from before the foundation of the world, and they're there, and they're happening, and they're unfolding the way they're supposed to, and, and yet we don't see the true significance of it until... Bam, the gospel happens. Jesus is crucified. Jesus is resurrected. And it all comes into focus. And there's lots of lots of these mysteries that that Paul talks about. He talks about the mystery of the hardening of the Jews. We'll look at that next week. He talks about the um, the mystery of the obedience of faith, the mystery of the resurrection, the mystery of his will, the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles, the mystery of marriage, the mystery of the gospel the mystery of Christ in you, the mystery which is Christ, the mystery of lawlessness, and the mystery of the faith, or the mystery of godliness. And we'll look at each of those mysteries over the course of the next several weeks until we get through the beginning of of December. But here's what we see in this. We see God's wisdom. We see that God has planned this out from before the foundation of the world, from before the ages. He's planned this out exactly the way that he has it to unfold God had planned out that Jesus would die and be our Savior before Adam and Eve ever ate from the tree in the garden right? God planned that out from before the foundation of the world. He already knew that was going to happen and planned a response to that already. We see that in the very response that God gives to uh, to Adam and Eve in the garden. In Genesis 3:15 sometimes it's called the first gospel, the first picture of, of the gospel there where he tells uh, the serpent that the woman's going to be mad at you and you're going to be mad at her and 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 you're gonna uh, you're gonna crush her heel, but she's or the offspring, your offspring and her offspring are gonna gonna be mad at each other as well, and have this enmity between one another. And you're gonna hurt her offspring, but her offspring's gonna crush your head. That's the very first prophecy, the very first idea of the gospel that Jesus is gonna send a a descendant who's in human form to crush the head of the serpent, to crush the head of sin and death and disease and, and all those things that go along with it, right? We see God's wisdom in this. We also see God's purpose, right? We're we're not just here, kind of, and things happening uh, with with no with no reason or rhyme to them. Things are happening for a purpose, and we're leading toward the end of time when when the Lord returns. We see God's purpose, and and then we also finally we see God's glory. We see God's glory that God's working all of this together for our good. For our benefit and for His glory, to show His goodness, to show His uh, His uh, wisdom, to show His th- this this purpose He has in, in in place, to show His goodness, to show His His mercy, to show His righteousness, to show all these different things about Him. He's He's working all this together to glorify Himself and to benefit us. And so we look forward to seeing these these mysteries unfolded throughout the next several weeks. Um, hopefully. Hopefully you'll be back for those and, and, and we'll get a picture of how wise God is, get a picture of God's purpose he has for us and, and and for the world and get a picture of God's glory, just how great he is in in doing these things and making these things um, bear witness to his son Jesus and his work in the world. Father God, we thank you so much this evening that you were good to us. God, we thank you that way back before the foundation of the world, God, even, even before you had laid the first uh, the 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 beginnings of creation, God, you had in mind how you were going to save your fallen sinful people. God, you had in mind how you were going to take us and and cleanse us and stop us from rebelling against you and woo us back to yourself and and make us your children. God, you had uh, a plan and, and and an idea already back then of of things that you were going to put into place, marriage and uh, the the kingship and, and prophecy and the priesthood and all these different things that you were going to do to show us the gospel of Jesus, to show us how great you are and to just, and just show us, Father, how much you love us. i got to pray over the next several weeks that you would... Help us to see, Father, help us to understand. I pray that we would have eyes um, that are enlightened by your spirit, Father, spiritual eyes, that we can see the true wisdom of God. And Father, I pray you would help us to see how it contrasts with the false wisdom of this world. God, I pray that you would lead us to worship you more, to follow you more faithfully, and Father, to love you more truly. God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our Savior, your your Son, our Lord, our King. It's in his name we pray, amen.